You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Hospitality. Providence is a community of people formed around a single and compelling vision to make the gospel of Jesus unignorable in our community. So to that end, we open the Bible every week because we believe it was given to us that we may know, worship, and obey Jesus. So this morning, we're going to continue in our series that we've been walking through titled The Great Eight, where we have been walking through Romans chapter 8 and really just being challenged and encouraged by the promises of God. So this morning, we're going to be in chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have one, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that with you today as a gift from us. So if you're able, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you here. Thanks so much for making us a part of your week. Uh, My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And like Jenna said, we've been walking through Romans chapter number eight. Hope you guys have had a good week, have had a good weekend, and that that will uh, continue. So, so far what we've gotten through Romans chapter eight is God is evidently committed to giving us his highest and best. Uh, and namely giving us himself. That's really what we've gotten through in the first, I don't know, 11, 12, 13 verses or so, is that God is about the business of looking to people like you and I who don't have anything to offer. If we get to the end of our rope, God says that's exactly where we ought to be, and then he is in the business of giving us the one thing that we need and the one thing that we can't attain on our own, which is himself in us. That's his intention. God's intention is to not just show up and be with us. That was Jesus' name whenever he was uh, born in Bethlehem, right? Name him Emmanuel, God with us. But God wasn't contented in just coming and being with us. But then upon the ascension of Jesus, he says, wait, I'm going to give you uh, power from on high before you go and do any ministry. And the spirit's going to fall. The spirit is God in us, working in us to bring us life instead of death, which is what the flesh has promised. And this morning, Paul's going to give us, he's going to go a step further, and he's going to give us what is God's intention for the Christian as the Christian faces three major, not just obstacles, but enemies and hardships of life. Number one, the hardship of fear or the difficulty of facing down fear. Number two, the difficulty of facing down our flesh. And then, of course, facing suffering. And then, listen, I'm not going to get too far into suffering because Paul in in this particular chapter, he's going to 
go on a big stanza in a moment here to give us a real good theology of suffering. So, you know, just gear up for that. I know you're excited about that. You know, write that one down in your calendars. We're going to talk a little bit about what Paul says. And really, there's a lot of joy there. I'm no kidding. But fear and suffering in the flesh. And, And here's the thing. This is a really special sermon for me because all of this is in the context of adoption. All of this gets to be in the context of the doctrine of adoption that Paul kind of fleshes out here in a way that no other writer in your Bible fleshes out. He does this a number of times in the New Testament, but here uh, first and very powerfully. So we're going to talk about first the context of adoption uh, and then how it helps us to face these, these enemies down. Uh, I wanted to say this. J.I. Packer famously said about the topic of adoption um, that it is the highest privilege of the gospel for the Christian. So because, you know, we're, we're gospel-centered church, uh, we talk a lot about justification. Justification being that God has just, or Jesus has justified us through his perfect life and vicarious death and resurrection, been justified in the sight of God. We've been made righteous. And that that's really the, the center of the gospel. And I think that that's still true. It's at, the, it's at the rock solid center. Paul talks about that through Romans. But I agree with J.I. Packer here in that God did, did not send Jesus to die for us just so that we might be justified, but that in being justified, we might be adopted into his family. We're not just forgiven people. Like, that's the starting line. We're welcomed in. You know, you can forgive people if you've ever, like, somebody, like, bumped into your car or something. You know, you forgave them. You just didn't invite them over for dinner and then give them room and board, did you? Right? It's different. And so he says it's the highest privilege of the gospel. And then when he was asked how you could define a Christian, J.I. Packer would go on to say, a Christian is someone who understands and embraces this truth. A Christian is someone who calls God his father. That's interesting to think through. So this morning, I get the honor of unpacking the single highest privilege of the gospel and then talking about how it empowers us to face down the hardest parts of life. So before I do that, if you'll bow your heads with me, I'd love to pray and just ask the spirit to do what only the spirit can do and encourage us. Father, first, thank you that we get that privilege to draw upon the language of the Lord Jesus and to call it our own, that we could call you our father. What a gift that we not only can call you that, but you are our father. You hear us, you know us, you love us. And so now we just, we just ask to get together that in this moment, you might meet us here, shepherd us, care for us, guide us, open the eyes of our heart where we might have made acquiescing compromises with our flesh that really just kill us from the inside. Calm our fears, God. Rid us of the ugly cousin of fear, anxiety, that even now is making us a little jittery. And Lord, for those of our brothers and sisters who are suffering, we rally around them and ask that you would give them both courage to face suffering, but also comfort them and be the God of all comfort to them. Father who wraps his arms around the sufferer, God, would you comfort the suffering and alleviate it, God, in a way that only you can do. We just love you, we trust you, and we honor you, and we thank you for the high privilege to sit underneath your word and to allow you to minister to us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So if you don't know, one of the reasons that it's such a privilege for me to be able to talk about the privilege of adoption is that Morgan and I have had that personal privilege ourselves to be adoptive parents. Uh, and our story is still ongoing, obviously. We're still pursuing the finalization of the adoption of our daughter, which has uh, been, been a long time, like three and a half years of waiting. So we've been in an international adoption process, I think, for going on our seventh year of trying to bring home and, and, and make our family whole. So, uh, so adoption so near and dear to our hearts because of that. Uh, and we, we said when we got married, when we went through premarital counseling, if you guys can go back that far and think about your premarital counseling and how, you know, that went. Uh, we, we said then, we, we, you know, you did the kind of exercises of like asking the big questions, like what will we be about? So you're trying to avoid future arguments, which kind of works, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and, uh, and so one of them was, we wanted to be adoptive parents. And we knew that, uh, but we always said that we would adopt domestically. Well, that changed. Uh, felt like the Lord was calling us to adopt internationally, and we, through a, through a series of things that actually happened within the life of our church, we happened to be praying for unreached people groups. We prayed for a particular people group in the country, this country called Kyrgyzstan, which we had never heard about before. It's this tiny little landlocked country that used to be an old Soviet country, became its own nation state in 1991. We, had no, we knew nothing about it. And at the very same time, we had put in our pre-application for international adoption, and they came back with some paperwork that said, we think this program would be great for you, Kyrgyzstan. So we said, okay, let's do it. And so we jumped into that process. And... Earthly adoption is gloriously difficult. <laughs> it is. It's amazing and it's difficult. It is filled with some heart-wrenching turns and disappointments, and yet it is worth every setback, every suffering. There is so much joy there. And here's why. Um, there is joy up to a lot of things in life. But the reason that I believe earthly adoption has so much joy attached to it is because there's very few things that reflect the heart of God and reflect the beauty of God's love for us like that. So it's one of the reasons why I think some of your deepest joys will come from things like marriage and family. And that's because marriage and family reflect the very unity of the Godhead. And so there's something really sacred about it, right? That's why Paul says there's the mystery of marriage, which is that it reflects the gospel. And I think that's why there's the deepest joys there. And earthly adoption is that because we were adopted into the family of God. That's what Paul's getting at. And even though our heavenly adoption is so much more deep than the earthly adoption, there are so many parallels to earthly adoption that help us to really understand what is Paul talking about when he says that God adopted us? Because weren't we all just born and we're, we call ourselves God's children, right? We just kind of generally call human beings God's children, and I think there's a truth to that. But the adoption of God through the blood of Jesus Christ is something altogether wonderful and specific. And it's specific so that Christians would know they're standing with God. So what I want to do is kind of, kind of walk you through, and forgive me on this, I just think that it's helpful. I'm going to walk you through a little bit of like our personal story and how it parallels, how it shows us in an imperfect way, but in a really powerful way, what God's done for us in adoption. So I wrote down just kind of like, uh, like 10 steps we went through. And these aren't like points, so you can just kind of listen. These aren't points for the sermon, but like these steps that we went through uh, in adopting. The first one is the choice that has to be made for adoption. So some of you are like, listen, I have a biological baby. We made a choice too. And I would say, that's absolutely true. And a lot of families do that. I'll say, I've met a lot of you that didn't. Okay, it just happened, just, just happened to be a July 4th night, you know, clandestine, whatever it was. Um, but with adoption, it has to be a choice. It doesn't happenstance upon you. The parent makes a willful, volitional choice. There has to be a choice made in the mind of the parent. This will happen. Um, the choice is made. This child will be our own. 
And then after that, then after the choice is made, now you guys probably assume this, the costs come in, right? It's like any other choice really in, in human life. All the costs show up. So there are a lot of heavy costs to adopt internationally. There's things like filing fees. Uh, there's things like paperwork. You have to do what's called a dossier, which is basically just this, this Bible of your life that you have to go get what's called apostilled at the Secretary of State's office. You got to go and they do this just weird paperwork to authenticate that you're a human and uh, that you actually exist and that you're not, you know, a creep weirdo. And, you know, it's tough. You got to go through a lot of gates. And, and listen, I'm, I'm happy for that because there are sadly creep weirdos, you know, that, that are used that process in order to harm people. And so they go through this and you have this big stack of papers. You make so many printing copies. And then you have to have what we actually have a FedEx account because of how much paperwork we'd have to send overseas. You know, it just this, this big packets full. Because we've been in the international adoption process for seven years, we've done f- almost, I think, four or five dossiers because paperwork expires, and then you have to go again, and then you have to go again, you have to go again. I've driven at 5 a.m. to Austin to the Secretary of State's office to get in there right when the doors open countless times. I know that road to head there to stop and to go and get all these things apostilled. And it all costs, right, whether you're getting fuel or whether you're, you know, jumping on a plane. Plane tickets, you know, they're pretty pricey whenever you go on the other side of the world. Kyrgyzstan, if you dug a hole right now through Houston, you'd show up in Kyrgyzstan. That's the other side of the world. It's a long way. And it costs. And then once you pay all the things for like your dossier, you get all your things uh, set out, there's the waiting. And obviously we waited and waited and waited. And still for, for our daughter right now, we wait. And it's impossible to explain how difficult that can be, just the waiting. And then like the setbacks and then, you know, not knowing exactly what's going on with the judges or the, and you have people that ask you like, what's going on? You're like, I'm not sure. We'll figure it out. Just the waiting. Then I remember on December 13th for Jonas, this is for for my son, we got the call. And the call is what you're always waiting for, this call where they're going to say, hey, will you come for your bonding trip? And international adoptions are all different. Some have one trip, some have two trips. We got the lucky country that has three trips. Real real generous moment, right? And so we got the first call, December 13th. And we we had been praying. One of our elders, most of you know, uh, one of our elders, Butch Holmes at the time, had been praying that we'd have a Merry Christmas and that was his prayer for us, that we'd have a Merry Christmas. We, December 13th, we got the call. I remember where I was. And, and I think they thought that we would wait till the new year. And then we would, you know, think that's probably why they called. Well, what they didn't know is that we were ready. We were, we were waiting all this time. So I called them back the next day and said, hey, we got tickets. We'll be there. And like, they're like, when? I'm like, three days. <laughs> okay. So we went and we got there on Christmas and, and we got that call to go. And we booked our tickets. The journey is long. We hopped a flight to Miami and then from Miami to Istanbul and then from Istanbul to Kyrgyzstan. It's 22 hours of travel time. You leave in the evening, you leave in the morning, like, or or I'm sorry, in the evening on like a Monday and you show up on Wednesday morning. That's how long of the the travel it is. And uh, just long, arduous. Also, I'm a big guy. So like, if you've ever been on a flight, if you get a middle seat, you like sit like this, you know? You don't want to touch everybody, and it just, it's awful. And just think about being on that flight forever. You know, you're like, oh, man, this is brutal. It's a long way. And then, of course, the best is the visit. You go, and we remember meeting our son, hugging him, kissing him, loving him, telling Jonas, hey, we're your mom and dad. You show him, we showed him uh, his room. So, like, we played with all of his toys. We showed him his room. We had pictures of us. And, and then here's where your room is, and here's where your house is. And this is your grandpa, and this is your grandma, and this is your family. And we're showing him all these pictures, right? Because, like, this, this is your home. And, uh, you know, Mom and dad are here, and it's exciting. And then the sad part about international adoption, especially for our country, is the leaving after that. Then you have to go back home, and they're setting a court case for you. So then you have to go and basically say, um, hey, we'll be back. That's the worst, the worst feeling. Say, hey, we'll be back. You have a mommy and daddy, but we got to go. 
So then you get a court case and we come back. So you fly back another time. And at this time, we thought that I might be able to go by myself for Jonas and that didn't happen. So Morgan and I both went. We ended up living in Kyrgyzstan for like 57 days for these last two parts. But we went to court and the court case is a nerve wracking situation that ends really amazingly. We had four court cases over three days where we, we are not allowed to have representation. So we couldn't have, uh, we couldn't have a, a lawyer with us. All we could have is a translator. So the translator just tells us or tells the judge what we're saying, but we don't have any, like, we don't know Kyrgyz law. So they're asking us all sorts of questions and we're just like, I don't know. And it's really nerve wracking. I remember just being like, okay, they're going to just deny us what's happening here. So four court cases, three days. And then I remember I had my phone and they told us that she's going to, she's going to rule in your favor. And I put my phone in my pocket for voice memo and recorded her in Russian telling us you've been awarded the parental rights of Jonas. And it's an amazing moment. He's legally ours. You know, he's getting a new name. He's all the things that we, that we told him and showed him are, are, are coming true for him, right? At the time, you know, Jonas is, I think, out in the car or something. He couldn't be in there. And so somebody was watching him. It's just, a, it's, an, it's a magical moment. I still have pictures of that day with us. And then the glories of our adoption, they're pretty difficult, is then you go into a 30-day holding pattern again. Because in order for it to become civil law, you have to wait 30 days. So there's this holding pattern that happens. And for 30 days, you're just kind of waiting until it officially becomes civil law of the land. And then lastly, after that, there's the consummation of the whole process, right? It's done. You get a stamp. And then for the next seven days, you get all the documentation, birth certificate, uh, new, the new name that he has, new citizen, citizenship in a new country. That's one of the coolest things. You go into the U.S. Embassy. And you sit across from the glass from the U.S. consulate, and he talks to you about the process as you get into the plane and what's going to happen, because now your child is going to be a dual citizen. So he maintains his citizenship in Kyrgyzstan, but when we get into the plane, they said, now he's headed to the United States, and once the, to the wheels touch the ground, he's a U.S. citizen. And now he, he has a, a new citizenship in the United States. So immediately he's going to get a passport sent to him, a social security number, all these things, to be a citizen of the U.S. It's amazing how it works. Um, and then, of course, like I'm watching, I remember I'm, I'm just tired and it's miserable on the fly. And Jonas is doing amazing, by the way. And I'm not. I'm being more of a toddler than he is. And I remember sitting there and, I, you, know, you know, the little monitors where it has the plane and it's showing the arc and it's like showing you where you are. I'm like the one who just like looks at it all the time because I'm just hoping, you know, how kids do that. Are we there yet? Are you there yet? I never grew out of that. I'm still wanting to know how close we are. And I remember whenever the, I see the little plane get over the U.S. border, I'm like, Lord, if the plane goes down, at least we're all together. I'm happy, you know, we're in the U.S. land. And then again, even more joy when it crossed over because you kind of go up into the jet stream up into Canada and then it comes straight down the U.S. So when we hit the panhandle of Texas, I was like, thank God we're in the great nation of home, you know. And, and I, was, I was so joyful about it. Paul uniquely unpacks spiritual adoption to us and spiritual adoption mirrors that process in some really unique and amazing ways. That you and I have been spiritually adopted into the family of God and that the, all of these things similarly happen and are happening to us as we are getting closer to home. Last week we talked about belonging and how hard it is to get home. That we, you and I are headed closer to the reality of our father bringing us home again. And we're in the middle of this thing. But it's amazing to see just how powerful the analogy goes. So first is the choice, right? God making a conscious decision to do whatever it takes to get his children. That happened. The scripture talks about this, whether it be Romans chapter 8 at the very end, which we'll get to, or Ephesians chapter 1, that God 
has eternally made a decision that his children will be his. It was a choice. It was volitional, not just happenstance. God said, my children will be mine. And there was a lot more things that he was going to have to overcome because of our sin. And yet he said, this is going to happen. The choice is made, which leads to the cost. What's the cost of adoption for God? It is the highest cost of all. So whereas we spent, I think, like $35,000 for our adoption of Jonas, which you might be like, oh my gosh, that is a lot. It is a lot, by the way. We also have an amazing ministry, Providence Orphan Care. We have amazing uh, people who we fundraise. People were generous. It was, it was unbelievable. But the cost for your spiritual adoption just makes, it dwarfs that. It makes that look minuscule. Christ has to die in order for us to be adopted. This is the cost. So it says, when, when the Bible says that Christ was slain before the foundations of the world, I want you to think through this. God, in eternity past, makes the decision that he is going to rescue his children, and that decision is simultaneously attached to the cost that must be paid, and therefore Christ was already slain in the mind of God. Because why? Because that's how committed he was for, to you and me to bring us into the family. It was already done. And I understand this at a very visceral level. The moment that Morgan and I made that decision, before I had ever seen the face of Jonas, our child, in a little video, and they said, we're going to pair you with this child, in our hearts, the cost was already paid. The money just had to come into the account and do all of the stuff. I already knew. That's all going out. He is going to be our child. Then you have the waiting. And you never really think about this until you go through the process, but thinking about the heart of God and the waiting, like, you ever thought about the Old Testament or the intertestamental periods? as there's this silence from God, and you think, man, how hard it must have been for the people to wait, right? To hear from God, for Jesus to show up, why? You ever thought about in the heart of God, the waiting, the patience that he shows? That perhaps there's a grieving to the waiting of wanting and longing for the consummation, like, a, like longing to look upon the day when finally he'd be able to bring us back into the fold. I imagine that in the heart of God, if it's anything like the heart of an earthly father, and I would say, like Jesus said, that we being evil give good gifts to our kids, how much more our heavenly father giving good gifts to the ones that he loves. How does the father feel about the interim waiting? I imagine it's pretty excruciating. And then, of course, the call. But what does the call look like? Well, the call for me was standing at my stove, right? December 13th, and I got the call, you guys can come. The scripture says in Galatians chapter four, verse four, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Christ. That means there was a call. There was this moment. Jesus had been waiting in the wings. God, the father says, now's the time. Jesus is like, let's do this. And he heads into human history, just like us. We were ready, you know? So I picture, like I understand that ready to go, situation because that's how we were like bags are packed I picture Jesus son of God ready as the father says it's time to go down let's do this thing we're about to enter into human history I'm you know Bethlehem here we go Mary and Joseph you don't know what's coming your way right Peter you're not even born yet give it time baby I'm on my way Jesus gets the call and he goes and then you have the journey. So listen, my journey's tough. It's long. It's arduous going across the world. Jesus makes what I would consider a galactic journey, right? Um, what does Jesus do? From the throne room of heaven to the manger in Bethlehem. Let's agree that's a worse trip, <laughs> right? You remember, we're Americans, so we're spoiled. And so you think about going into a developing nation. You're like, oh man, like the food's not going to be good. The smells aren't going to be good. It's like, oh man, I don't want to do this thing. The smog, all the things that, you know, we whine about being, you know, Americans. And I would encourage you to travel because it just makes you more grateful. Um, Jesus went from the throne room of heaven and he showed up into the Middle Eastern town of Bethlehem. And he didn't even show up to a hotel. 
Like he shows up to the manger scene where they're just, he's, at, he's birthed in a pig trough and they wrap him in swaddling cloths and he looks up. He's like, here we go. This is the place that I'm gonna spend the next 33 and a half years, right? And then the visit, right? So the visit for, for our family was hugging Jonas and kissing Jonas and telling him all the great things that are ahead for him. And then you have the visit of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He comes in the flesh. He comes in flesh and blood. He communicates the love of God the Father to us. He says, you loved. He tells parables to help us understand the love of God. He's telling stories because we can't quite understand just how loved we are because we never even, just like Jonas couldn't understand what it was like to be in a home with the family. How do you explain that? It's like us. We, we don't even recognize that we don't know what it's like to be not exiled. So Jesus has to try to give us these parables to explain. It's like, it's like a treasure hidden in a field and you stumble on it and you're like, I'll give anything just to belong. And Jesus is trying to explain to us just how amazing it is to be in the Father's house. And we're like, I want that. I just don't know what that is. And we're just trying to hear him out. He tells parables about our inheritance, about just how rich our father is. He gives us stories about his house saying, hey, in my dad's house, there's a lot of rooms. And you have your name on one. I can't, I'll never forget showing Jonas, you know, we had his room already ready. So it was like his name's on the wall and all the covers on his bed. And this is yours. So Jesus does this for us. He's, there's rooms. They're already made. They have your name on them. The hugging, right? Jesus actually came down flesh and blood. And you ever think about that, that the disciples got physical hugs from Jesus? That's pretty amazing. <laughs> they had dinner with him. They ate with him. He loved them. And then, of course, we, we get this right, especially those of us who are gospel guys and gals. The courtroom. Whoa, now I'm perking your ears up. You're the theologian. You're like, now we're getting into it. The courtroom scene. God the Father sits as judge. We're condemned. And not only does Jesus advocate as our, as our attorney, our defense attorney, the prosecutor steps in. Satan says, no. I have a claim on their lives. Jesus says, no, it's been paid for. He cleanses us. But then check this out, guys. The gospel is not just that we get acquitted. Then Jesus steps up to the bench and says, I also think that they need to be awarded something. And so what are they going to be awarded? They're going to be awarded rights of sonship. Well, who are the parents? Jesus says, I've paid the price so that they can have parents or that these can have a father. And Jesus stands forth for us and the Rights to our souls are officially given over to Jesus. Romans chapter eight, later on, it's gonna say it like this. Who is there condemn, Who is there to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. There's no condemnation because Christ is the only one that could. And instead he says, I'm gonna bring you into the family. And then of course the leaving. So the leaving really lurches my heart with, with, our, with our kids. But then I thought about Jesus ascending into heaven. Do you remember the disciples on the night before Jesus goes to the cross and he's warning them that he's gonna have to go and they're just crying? You can't imagine that until you experience it with a child. It's like they, they are saying, you're gonna leave us? Why would you leave us? And now you're trying to figure out this as a child, you know, a child's trying to figure out, you, you're my parents, how are you gonna leave? I imagine the disciples feel like, you said that we have the kingdom, you said that we have, you know, you understand Peter cutting off the, the high priest's servant's ear because he's like, you said the kingdom, we're gonna forcefully take the kingdom back, why won't we fight for it? Why are you gonna die? Why are you gonna leave us? He ascends into heaven and says, don't worry, I'm not gonna leave you as orphans. I'm coming back, but I'm gonna send to you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will fill you. And this, this, listen to this, Romans chapter eight. The spirit of adoption will fill your hearts so that you're reminded that I'm coming back. 
I'm coming back for you. Then there's the holding pattern. This right here, perk your ears up, is what you and I are in. The holding pattern. What is true for us has not fully materialized yet. We know we're God's children, but there's sometimes this lingering feeling that it might just be too good to be true, right? Like maybe we're God's children, but he hasn't been back for us, haven't really felt him in a while. He's not calling much. Maybe someone's going to snatch us out of the arms of the Father. Romans 8 is the definitive attack against that lie, which is why Paul later on is going to say nothing, neither life nor death nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come can take you out of the Father's hand. Why? Because his love for you compels. And there's no way that the Father's love, which so far surpasses the love of an earthly father like me, would ever let that happen. And I know that viscerally. It won't happen. The fear that exists for you and I that one, someone's going to be able to snatch us out of the Father's hand is a complete facade. It is not on the basis of you being strong that your Father has committed to making you a part of his family. It is instead on the basis of your Father's strength and love. That's why you can be sure you're not going to be snatched out of his hand. And then lastly, the consummation. This is when we read Revelation 21, when we read some of uh, Isaiah's prophecies about the day when the lion will lay with the lamb, when all of our swords will be beaten into plowshares, and we can be on Mount Zion together. When we read about the marriage supper of the lamb, we're reading about our new name, our new citizenship in heaven, when we see him face to face finally, and we're back home again. That's going to happen. That's going to happen for you, and it's going to happen for me. We're headed that way. In his presence, finally, the culmination of all things. Isn't it amazing, these parallels? This is, this is what Jesus did for us. And this is what Paul wants us to ruminate on. This is the cost. This is what he's after. And also, in particular, Paul wants you to know, let me quote it for you so that we see this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This word Abba is the Greek word for daddy or dada. That's what my son calls me, dada. An intimate, childlike crying out to the God of the universe who hears and responds because you and I have different standing with him as his kids. And Paul wants you to know, God did not give you a spirit. He did not fill you with a spirit of subservience. That instead of God calling himself a master, that's how you should pray to me. Pray to me as master. Jesus said, you ought to pray to God as father. Do you guys see the difference here? This is amazing. Could you imagine a universe, I could, where an all-powerful God just wanted human beings or people to do his bidding and therefore filled them with the spirit of slavery where they would just do his bidding so that he could build whatever he wanted. I could imagine a universe like that. It would be dark. But instead, we have a God whose desire is to fill us with the spirit of adoption that we might be able to call out to him as daddy, dada, in his family. Paul is very passionate about this. He wants you to know it's true and why. Well, let's go through these three things and then we will wrap it up this morning. Let's start again in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He just doesn't want to waste time here. He's just going to shoot you straight. Uh, First, he says, you're not debtors to the flesh. In other words, you and I, because we're in Christ, we don't owe the flesh anything. You don't owe the flesh anything. Most of the time, whenever we fall into the deeds of the flesh and sin of our carnal desires, it's because our flesh cries out to us, you owe me. (laughs) You owe me food. You owe me sensual desires. You owe to respond to me. This is why Paul would later on go to say, I beat my body into subjection so that my body knows that I run it by my soul runs my body, not my body commands my soul. Does this make sense? So he says, you don't owe the flesh anything. And then he goes on to say, because if you live according to flesh, you're going to die. But if you live according to the spirit, you will live if you put to death the deeds of the body. And then he gives you a because for all who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. That should give you great hope. Because if you find yourself saying, Court, that sounds good, but I still struggle with the deeds of the body. I fight against the deeds of the body every day, and I still lose. I want to encourage you, the very fact that you are fighting against the deeds of the body by striving to be led by the Spirit should remind you that you are sons and daughters of God. That's the confirmation. If you didn't fight, you should be more worried. Because that means you're on autopilot, and that's a scary place to be. See, Paul is saying, how do we fight? We fight on the foundation of our sonship and our daughterhood. Our being children of God gives us the confidence to face down the flesh and say, we do not have to succumb to you because we owe you nothing. And we fight against the deeds of the body with the power and the strength of the spirit of God in us, working through us to say, we don't have to do anything. We're free men and women. We're children. We freely worship God. This is Romans chapter 12 as we are conformed to the image of Christ and we begin to live lives of spiritual worship. This is what God creates. And how does God create that? By living, by dying for us and by rising. You ever think about the fact that Jesus, it says, makes himself a slave? That was the cost of adoption. In order to make you a son, he had to become a slave. And he was willing. This is part of the imagery of Jesus walking barefoot to the cross. The Romans would always make slaves and servants walk barefoot. Jesus barefoot to the cross shows that he was willing to go to that level. When he stoops at the feet of the disciples and washes their feet, he's showing them, this is what I'll become. I'll become base. I'll become nothing so that you can be sons and daughters. And we fight sin on that basis that we have an identity, not to just be base creatures who are inflamed and enslaved to our passions. We fight because we know we're sons and daughters. Which leads to the second piece, verse 15. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into what? Fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Why does he talk about fear? Why is he talking about that being an obstacle for us? Slavery implies that life is all about serving a master for his own benefits and that this master cares nothing for our well-being. And Paul is saying, this is not the God we serve. We don't have to be afraid like that, that God would be this way to us. My biggest concern in the church is that many of us still are operating under this basis that God is a slave master rather than a father. That the slave massacre cracks the whip, give tithes, cracks the whip, serve the children's ministry, cracks the whip, get into home group, get back in community, just keeps cracking the whip more and more rather than we are free to do those things because we're sons and daughters. It's a different mentality. 
We're, we're, we're not slaves. <laughs> we're sons. I love this. This is the very foundation. It's why slavery in a human institution is so grotesque because it's the antithesis to God and how he created us. It's why there should be a visceral reaction when we even remember the Chateau slavery of the United States or go back into human history and look at slavery and see people being human slaves. It's, it's unbelievably grotesque to think about because God, whom we are made in the image of, is not a slave master. In fact, when you read the Exodus, he has something to say about slave masters. He says, my glory will be shown over Pharaoh. In all the earth, they'll remember my name, not Pharaoh's name. The taskmaster Pharaoh is an evil man, but our God is a father. And father, I want you to think Taken, right? You remember the movie Taken with Liam Neeson? Isn't it amazing? All he does is just hear a few words and just travels the whole earth ready to take retribution on whoever messes with his daughter, right? It's like the perfect movie. Catches them, beats them all up. I mean, everyone, the justice is just every time there's a new scene, you're like, thank God, yes, next. And then he beats somebody else up, snaps a neck, awesome. You know, a couple bullets into people's backs, you're like, they deserved it. Throws a guy into an electric wall. You're like, oh, this is getting better. By the end, he's on a yacht, just killing tons of people, just flames the yacht and carries his daughter away. And you're just like, man, this is a guy I want to hang out with. (laughs) Basically, that's the story of the scriptures in the Old Testament with God, our father. He's got kids, people mess with his kids, and then he shows up. It's like, well, this is not good. And he does so in some of the most powerful and amazing ways. Pharaoh says, I'm going to continue to enslave you. I'm going to keep saying no. God says, fine, I'll just throw a bunch of frogs at you. What? What about hail? What about darkness? What about you're going to go through the Red Sea? I'm going to split the Red Sea for my kids, and then you try to hurt my kids. I'm just going to swallow you up in it. And you don't really understand that until you start thinking about the heart of a father and what you'd be willing to do if someone were to harm your children. And Paul is trying to teach us, you're children of God now. Why would you be afraid? Like if Liam Neeson was my dad, I'd be like, well, I feel pretty confident to go to Target. You know, like if someone like tries to do ransom, he understands, you know, every language and can take their voices and find them on the face of the earth. And then there's God who never forgets His eyes are on the sparrow. How much more will his eyes be on his children? He knows. And then I love that Paul says we can cry out, Abba, Father. He's saying that we can cry out to God at any time for help. And friends, don't we find ourselves in the need of God's help? And guess what? You're not alone. There's very few things that when my child is crying out, I won't run to the other room to figure out. Moms, you get this too, right? And here's the thing, whether you're a mother and a father in the room or you're not, uh, there's, a, there's a visceral reaction when a child cries out. You, t- you can take the form of mother even if you're not a mother in the room, right? You run in and you grab a baby or, or father even if you're not a father. If, someone's, if a child's crying out, you take that form, you hear it, and you run to it. Our father is this way. And Paul says, you now have the privilege to cry out to God. Anxiety is the, the result of us rejecting this privilege, Anxiety is what happens when we reject the privilege to cry out to God and we try to figure it out on our own. And then it just keeps on unraveling before our eyes. And we, we start to get more and more anxious and nervous rather than saying, help God. The prayer life that the spirit of adoption should produce should be strong. It should be regular. It should be consistent. How many times, moms, does a small child that is yours bug you throughout the day for the most inane things in the world? <laughs> And you know what Jesus says about that? I love it. Keep bugging me. He uses the parable of the persistent widow. 
Just keep bugging me, keep calling, keep asking, keep knocking, keep searching. That's got to be us. And then finally, Paul gives us this last bit, which I think is powerful. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness within our spirit that we are children of God. If you wonder if you're a child of God and you're struggling with that, this is not God's desire for you. His desire is that you would be assured that you are his. That is why he gave you the Holy Spirit to testify to you that you are his. And the enemy's job is to try to sever you from that confidence. Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit to remind us these are our privileges. Because hear me on this, friends. If the enemy can separate you from that confidence, he will derail your spiritual life. He'll take you away from ever crying out to God in prayer. He'll take you away from reading the word. He'll take you away from Christian community. He can lie at every level if he can convince you you're not God's kid. But if that is true, he knows that he's on terrible grounds to battle the Christian. So he goes after your sonship or your daughterhood. But Paul says, no, the spirit testifies to us that we are the children of God. And if we're children, listen to this, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We can face life and all suffering with confidence because we know that we're heirs of Christ. We know the end of the story. The end of the book is great for us. You ever read a book or watched a movie and been anxious about its ending? It's part of the thrill, right? Like part of it is like, ooh, I wonder what happens. That's not what we have to do. It's, a, it's part of the thrill when you're watching a movie. It's not part of the thrill when it's your own life, right? It's like, like, I need to know how this ends. Good news, guys. We know how it ends. It, it ends with us living forever with him. It ends with us reigning forever with him. It ends with our earthly failures not being final, but Christ's earthly accomplishments being ours. Accolades and acclaim forever and ever. It ends with our current portfolio or bank account not being the main thing about us. Isn't that a blessing? It ends with us being in a mansion where the AC doesn't go out in July. (laughs) It ends with our earthly acclaim and popularity meaning zilch, nothing. Like people are mean to me online. It will mean nothing. We're gonna be like, what was, what, what is it called again? Facebook? whatever. Who cares? People didn't comment on my stuff. You will not care one bit. Your earthly acclaim and popularity, the most popular person in the world, name them. Is it the Kardashians? It will mean nothing in heaven, nothing in eternity. Our pain and suffering are going to be turned to glory. That's how it ends. Every single tear, every single cancer cell that reforms and takes another cancer cell and another cancer cell and tries to overtake our human body. And if it leads to death, you know what? We're going to show up to glory and God is going to reverse it for our joy. That's what we have to look forward to. Why is this all important? And it's important for a simple reason. Spiritual orphans still exist today and some of them are in the church and it breaks my heart as a pastor walking around in the house of God like you don't have a room, like you're just a visitor. Isn't it a weird thing? Like being a visitor to the church. If you're a Christian, that's just not a thing. Like if you're in Christ, yeah, maybe you visit the local body or this expression, but being a visitor to the church is like saying, 
when I go home today that I have to get a passport to walk through my front door. We belong. And the Christians that live their lives as orphans, they will not live with courageous confidence. They will not live with tender love of adopted children in the family of God. They will live with anxiety-ridden, depressed, downtrodden dispositions. They will shuffle their feet through their Christian life, kind of looking down rather than looking up in joy. And I don't want that. I don't want it for myself. And let me say this pastorally, I have those moments. If you're like, man, that's me. I want to give you good news. That's not God's desire for you. And listen, it's as easy as saying, Spirit, fill me today afresh again. Brothers and sisters, you've been given a new name. You have a rich inheritance. You have a wonderful family. You have a secure future. You have a good father. You are children of God. If you're in Christ, you can just take these to the bank. You want to know the best news? The family's expanding every day. It's awesome, isn't it? Every day. We get new family members. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. <laughs> Thanks that we are yours. For my friends who are suffering, my, my sisters who, that anxiety talk is not a simple line in a sermon to them. It's a current reality. And so it seems trite to hear me talk about it like that. God, would you give them peace? Because I know what that feels like. And I just ask that you would overwhelm them with your peace that surpasses their understanding. If they're in a moment where they struggle with understanding, just overwhelm them with the spirit of adoption for my brothers who feel as though the weight of the world is on their shoulders in this time. My God, would you just lift that weight and remind them you have carried that weight to the cross. For the weary, would you strengthen them? For those that are rejoicing in the room, would you compel them to share that joy with others? But most of all, my God, would you unite and protect your family by the power of your spirit, the deeds of the flesh that we ought to put to death. God, give us the courage to face them and to be killing sin. not by our own power, but by submission to your spirit. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name.